you can make your way back to your seats. We're going to get started. And open up in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis 50 verses 15 through 26 is going to be our passage of Scripture this morning. And the title of the message is The Faithfulness of God in the Life of Joseph. The Faithfulness of God in the Life of Joseph. We're really going to be looking at the entire scriptural unit from Genesis 37 through all the way to Genesis chapter 50 and covering about the span of uh, 13 chapters today. But I want to focus in on this section of scripture because I think it encapsulates so well just what takes place in Genesis 37 through 50. So if you can open your Bibles and read with me in Genesis 50, beginning in verse 15, we'll read God's word together and then pray. It's so good to be with you, church. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, to the land he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Let's pray together. Almighty God, as we see your sovereign hand at work in the life of the people of Israel, and specifically in Joseph's life, I pray that all of us would have our faith strengthened in your sovereignty and in your goodness today. Help our trust in you to grow stronger as a local church, and help us as individual Christians for our faith to abound more and more, and that you would bring peace to all of us this morning, as we look at the details of our lives, that we would remember that you're absolutely in control of everything, and that you are good. We thank you so much, most of all, for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for us. And Lord, we do pray if anybody's here who hasn't trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, I pray that they would do so during the service today. We love you, Lord, and bless the preaching of your word this morning. Holy Spirit, we pray for your power. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I have three points this morning from the passage. The first point is interpret the past sovereignly. Interpret the past sovereignly. Secondly, interpret the present providentially. Interpret the present providentially. And thirdly, interpret the future 
gloriously. Interpret the future gloriously. So the first point this morning is interpret the past sovereignly. And I want to key in here on one verse that we kind of just hit on. It's in verse 20 of Genesis chapter 50. Joseph said to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Uh, This picture right here of of Joseph uh, really reminding his brothers of, yes, the evil that they did, but also what God intended and what God meant. And then his forgiveness of them and him comforting them and speaking kindly to them. It's really, it's almost like a heavenly picture of forgiveness and reconciliation, isn't it, brothers and sisters? It's such a rare sight in this fallen world. Um, and, and you see forgiveness, you see love, you see affection, you see the repentance of the brothers, and you see humility on their part. It's all on display in a picture of family reconciliation that is really special in the entire Bible. Um, It's a pinnacle of good that's been building up throughout all of Joseph's story. But what it's important to know is that the background of this story and this moment is one riddled with great evil and pain committed against Joseph. Many of you would be familiar with the story, but we're going to be kind of weaving into the story as we look at Joseph's life here. Because back in Genesis chapter 37, you might remember that Joseph's brothers... Out of envy, they plot to actually kill him because he has these dreams where he, he, he is, he's basically told by the Lord that his brothers and even his, his mother and father are going to one day bow down to him and, and they, they hate him for this dream. And they actually see him and they plan to kill him. But his life, Joseph's, is preserved by God as his brothers end up selling him into slavery to the Ishmaelite Midianite traders who come along and rather than kill their brother or leave him in the pit that they put him in, which was terrifying for Joseph, they sold him to the Ishmaelite Midianite traders who then took him to Egypt. And the brothers, of course, lie to their father Jacob and tell him that he was killed by a wild beast. They bring the coat of many colors back, dipped, and blood, and they lie to Jacob, and they, they bring great grief down upon their father. So they not only sin greatly against their brother Joseph, but they sin greatly against their father Jacob as well. The, the scars of just this event alone, are, are they're still alive in Joseph's life, even at this late stage when he forgives them. And the scars that we bear in our Christian lives are scars that, endure as well. And one of the things that affects me in Genesis 50 when Joseph acknowledges to your to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, is that it's okay to acknowledge man's evil against us. That's not wrong to do. There's great emotion that Joseph has throughout the entire story of Genesis 37 through 50, and when he's taken to Egypt, and later on when he sees his brothers again, there's there's great weeping on a number of occasions by Joseph as he's seeing his brothers again, and he's remembering all that he's lost. And I was talking about it with my family. He he didn't get a chance to see Benjamin grow up, and he recognized him when he came, but, but there was so much lost all this time with his father while he was spending between 13 and 17 years in slavery and then in prison in Egypt. And he he weeps over the loss that he experiences. And it's important to remember that godliness is not stoicism. It's okay to weep over what we've lost. And it's okay to acknowledge that evils have been committed against us. And it's important to note this because Looking upon the past through the lens of God's sovereignty or interpreting interpreting the past sovereignly in our life doesn't mean that you don't acknowledge that you were hurt by the evils that were committed against you in your past. That's a very important point to remember. And Joseph acknowledges to his brothers, you did, you meant evil 
against me. But then he, he doesn't stop there. One of the key things that really stands out about Joseph here is that he doesn't just acknowledge man's evil against him or his brother's evil sins against him. He acknowledges and really accents because he, he places this second. He acknowledges God meant it for good. There's a belief here in God's sovereignty that God is absolutely the one who was in control of everything all along. And Joseph acknowledged both. But the accent for him was God's good that was meant. Not the evil that was committed against him by his brothers. The accent in his soul was the good that God brought about. And you see him just reminding his his brothers, not just of the good that God did to him, but you see a real big picture perspective in Joseph's mindset about what took place and as he interprets the past sovereignly. He says, God didn't just mean it for my good, but he also brought it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so he remembers the big picture that God worked all things together for good and that what was meant for evil by his brothers, God meant simultaneously for good. So I think there's a lesson here for us to learn, church, that let's acknowledge the evils that were done against us. But like Joseph's example, don't fixate on the evils that were committed against you. Fixate on the good that God was simultaneously working even as individuals were sinning against you. Because as man was working evil, God simultaneously was working it and intending it and meant it for good. Joseph rested on God meant it for good. And that is why he says it's second. John Piper, talking about the sovereignty of God, says this, these are things that God meant to work together for good. God did not just watch evil events unfold with no design and no purpose and then bring good out of them. No, just as Joseph's brothers meant it or purposed it, designed it, for evil, so also God meant it, purposed it, and designed it for good. It's always important for us, brothers and sisters, to remember that in every very difficult thing that we're going through in our lives, God simultaneously is meaning, He's intending, He's purposing for good. Even though Satan's intentions are to destroy Man's intentions can often be not for our good, but can be actually against us and for evil. The whole demonic realm is against us and hates our faith in Christ. But in the midst of all those evil workings, it's important to note that God is sovereignly meaning everything that takes place in our life for good, intending it for good, designing it for good, purposing it for good. And when we rest our faith in God and His sovereignty, it will bring a peace about our lives and our daily lives that often can elude us. And that's one of the things pastorally that John and I are really jealous for in relation to applying this message to our lives today. It's important to note the language that God didn't just use it for good. This is really important. God meant it for good. And that's true over every believer's life in this room. God doesn't use things for good. He doesn't have to play catch-up ball. This is His plan. So He isn't just good at outmaneuvering evil. He simultaneously, as evil is done against this, is intending that evil for our good. And there's a difference there, isn't there? There's a real intentional word choice here by Joseph, and the word is meant. And I think we need to adopt that kind of language in our Christian vocabulary when we talk about our sufferings and the difficulties that we have faced in our lives. And as we look back on the past, let us interpret the past 
sovereignly and remember that God has always been in control and God has always been good to us. Amen? Second point is interpret the present providentially. Interpret the present providentially. One Christian writes, Providence is the sovereignty of God made palpable. I like that. It's the outworking of His power and authority for His children in space and time. Which means, this is awesome, in the things that we schedule, the air we breathe, the moments we move, providence is observed, it's experienced, it's tasted. We may even say it's the distinctively Christian term for reality. I love that. I love that. Since God is sovereign and this world is His, then every moment, in a sense, is a moment of providence. Providence deals with the present, and that's why it's important to touch in on that term right now. Wherever you find yourself right now has come by the process of events that He has ordained. Every past moment of your life has led to your now. I love that. Every past moment of your life has led to your now. The same will be true tonight and tomorrow and ten years in the future. Our experience of providence is our experience of the present, which we know has been wondrously woven together by God. And because God is behind it all, and that's true, brothers and sisters, God is behind it all, we, as those united to Christ by faith, are assured of this. God's providence neither gets it wrong nor lets us go ever. God's providence neither gets it wrong nor lets us go ever. It's so good. God never gets it wrong. The decrees of providence are always wisest and best. And everything is a decree of providence. In the passage of Scripture we read the other day in our Bible reading program in Proverbs chapter 16, I was just marveling at this passage together with you, church. I, I love, and I love this verse of Scripture. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Dan Ivey says, the Lord determines his steps. In his heart, a man or a woman plans his own course. That's our actions, our scheduling, our busying of our lives. We plan our course. But I love the way simultaneously in that verse, Proverbs 16, verse 9, but the Lord determines his steps. The Lord determines her steps. Or as the ESV says, the Lord establishes His steps. God is always working His plan. Everything's always going exactly according to God's plan. And Joseph recognized that and he never gave himself over to a spirit of bitterness or a vindictive spirit, but instead forgave. And not only did he forgive, what is amazing in Genesis 50 here, look at that with me in verse 21, look at this. He says, I'm going to provide for you and your little ones. So he didn't just kind of forgive and then kind of love them from a distance. He forgives and he says, I'm going to provide for you. And he also comforts them and speaks kindly to them. There's a way of forgiveness that just says, yeah, I forgive you. And then just, you never want to deal with the person again. That's not what Joseph manifests here. He manifests the, the real free and full forgiveness of Christ here, where not only does he forgive, but he embraces once again with affection and kindness. And I, I want to ask you, is, is this reaction 
in this moment, something that just arose out of Joseph's heart in this moment when his brothers asked him for forgiveness? Once they repented? I don't think so. Moment by moment, in Joseph's present, all along the way over this last journey from 37 through 50, Joseph was trusting in God's providence. Remember, he was about 17 years old when he was thrown into the pit and then sold into slavery into Egypt. And he gets sold as a slave into Potiphar's house. And after a while in Potiphar's house, he ends up being imprisoned. And then he goes to be a prisoner. And it it seems that between 13 and 17 years of time, he spent in those two phases. He lost from 17 to about 30 to 33. It seems that Joseph lost his entire 20s. His youth in trial and suffering. This wasn't a season. This was normal for him. And it was almost like each story was like it couldn't get any worse, wasn't it? You read the story and he's thrown into the pit by his brothers. He's terrified because later on when his brothers remember what they did, they actually say, you know, judgment's coming down on us now. Don't you remember how he pleaded and begged? There's like this picture of story of anguish in, in Joseph. This young man's heart as his own brothers threw him down into a pit. And he, he kind of he never got over fully the, the scars of that event. He remembered it. And forgiveness doesn't mean we don't remember what was done, but it, it means that we don't fixate on what was done to the point where we allow ourselves to be overcome by bitterness. And you get into the pit and you realize, I, I don't think it could get worse for this young man. Then it gets worse. He gets sold into slavery. He's deprived of his family. He's deprived of all that life could have been for him as a young man under the favor of his father and under Jacob's household. He's deprived of all that. He's sent into Egypt where he doesn't know anybody and he's deprived of friendship and fellowship. And he's basically the only Israelite there, you would think. And you keep thinking, oh man, it can't get any worse here in Potiphar's house as a slave. And yet, it gets worse for him. He ends up getting sent to prison and he's deprived of his freedom for years. You think, man, it can't get any worse for him being in prison. And he has these dreams that ends up delivering Pharaoh's cupbearer out of prison. And he just says one thing to the cupbearer, remember me to Pharaoh when you get out of here because I'm here unjustly and I want to get out of prison. You see the humanity of, J- of Joseph right there. Just This was a hard trial and he wanted out. But it says in the Scriptures, in every step along the way, and you see this repeatedly in the Scriptures from 37 through 50, at the end of chapter 39, there's this great phrase, if you look there with me, in 39, at the end, I love this, because this just sums up so much, just God's working. It says, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge, was in Joseph's charge, because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So whatever Joseph did, God made it succeed. But even in the midst of all this faithfulness, things just kept getting worse and worse and worse, and yet it kept saying God was with him. Don't interpret circumstances in your life getting worse as an indication that God's no longer with you. Nothing could be further from the truth, beloved. Things may get worse and worse in our lives, and God will never leave us or forsake us. And Joseph, the Word of God says God was with him, and he prospered. He kind of of became the go-to guy everywhere he was, whether he was in Potiphar's house serving as a slave. Potiphar was able to delegate everything over to him and entrust everything over to him, which was a great testimony to the Israelites' faith in God. And, And then later on in the prison, the prison guard was able just to give the entire delegation of the prison over to him. And he keeps thriving, and it keeps going worse for him. He's doing what's right, and it keeps going worse for him. And yet, somehow, God protected him from bitterness. 
brothers and sisters, another application for this. When things don't go our way in our Christian lives, it's a very important moment in those moments. Don't give way to bitterness toward God. But rather, trust in His providential plan for your life. He is in control. And when you remember that His plans for you, like Jeremiah 29.11 says, His plans for you are good plans. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. You can live at peace. And you can even live with joy in the midst of circumstances that actually are tempting you to despair. There's a power that faith in God brings into the prison. Potiphar held him as a slave, and yet Joseph prospered him and didn't take advantage of him. There's an evidence there. He didn't give himself to bitterness. He could have. He could have held what his brothers did and just carried it as a visible scar and had just been mean in Potiphar's house. And just after that one trial, he does Potiphar good, and yet then he's falsely accused of attempted rape by Potiphar's wife. And then he's imprisoned for it. And yet he doesn't seem to have held her with bitterness in his heart later on, but rather he ends up being the means for both Potiphar and Potiphar's wife to be provided for with food during the famine. He interpreted the dream of the cupbearer and asked him to remember him to Pharaoh, and yet he was forgotten by the cupbearer. Just do this one thing for me, please. Remember me. And he's forgotten. And there's this little detail there, and then it just says, after he's forgotten, it says he was forgotten, and it says, after two more years, it's like this collective sigh in the scriptures. It's like, oh, like as if the past 13 to 15 haven't been enough. There's two more years that he's left in prison. And what we need to understand is God's providence is at work, even in someone forgetting about us. This is important because it's down to like the grains of sand in our life. Every little detail ordained by God for our good. As I was really thinking about this. If the cupbearer remembered and Joseph was freed here, he probably would have come up out of that prison and gone back to Canaan to be with his family, with Jacob. And then who would have saved the entire world from famine? We don't know what God's doing behind the scenes in our lives that are making every detail what it is. But when God says He means it and He intends it for good, brothers and sisters, we can trust Him moment by moment in our present that every detail is going according to His plan. And we are not in the hands of any man or we're not in the hands of fate or we're not in the hands of Satan and his evil designs. We are in the hands of an almighty God who loved us and sent His own Son to bleed and die for us. That's love. That is goodness. And we can entrust ourselves and our lives and even the details of somebody forgetting us after we've done them good. We can put that in His hands. Because it was all building to the perfect moment of deliverance. But the deliverance, dear church, was not fast in coming. It's important to note here as well that deliverance, it always comes for the Christian. 2 Corinthians 1 says God has delivered us and He will deliver us again. It's a promise. We're never going to be left in suffering and in trial. And the greatest example of that is when He takes us home to be with Him forever in glory and there's no more suffering ever again. More on that in a bit. But deliverance was not fast in coming for Joseph. How would you like 17 years of your life, boom, just gone? Maybe some of you can relate to that. Because deliverance isn't always fast for us, His people, either. 
at any point, bitterness could have overtaken Joseph. Because it wasn't a season. It was his normal. He was like a man, like almost like in the cartoons, and you think of uh, Winnie the Pooh with Eeyore. He was like a man walking around with a rain cloud pouring down on him as the sun seemed to be shining down on everybody around him. You, you, you laugh at that in the cartoons, but... And he's almost like the anti-Eeyore. He's like blooming where he's planted everywhere. And I, I think the reason for that is because instead of bitterness, instead of mopiness, instead of frustration and pent-up anger and even rage, Joseph trusted God's sovereignty as he looked at his past, and he trusted in God's providence as he looked at the present, and that's how he chose to interpret his life. Will you and I choose to interpret our lives the same way? It's very important for us, brothers and sisters, because if Joseph was bitter at any point along the way, instead of believing, and I'm sure he was much tempted, he wouldn't have thrived like he did, I'm convinced. He would have been a different guy in Potiphar's house and in prison. But because of his great faith in God that he's commended for, even in Hebrews 11, he didn't give himself over to a root of bitterness. As Ephesians says, don't even allow a root of bitterness to, to come. Strike it dead at the first seeking of it to grab your heart. Don't ever give yourself an inch with related to bitterness toward God or toward other Christians or toward other people. Trust in God, even when others do you wrong. Because it's faith in God and His promises that leads to thriving even in the worst of circumstances. And I believe God's got something better for us believers. He wants us to thrive. I couldn't help but think of Psalm 84.6 in relation to Joseph's life. It says that the person who trusts in the Lord, when they pass through the valley of Baca, they turn it into a place of springs. The valley of Baca is the valley of weeping. It was a place that the Israelites passed on their way up to Jerusalem and the psalmist says that as they pass through the valley of Baca or the valley of weeping, life is hard, isn't it, in this fallen world? And yet, for Christians who trust in the Lord, when we pass through the valley of weeping, we turn it into a place of springs. There's actually life into our own souls and into the lives and souls of others because we're trusting in the Lord and not giving ourselves over to bitterness. In other words, through faith, you can turn your barren desert of a trial into a spring of life to your own soul and to the soul of other people. And here, brothers and sisters, we need to recognize that so often bitterness can just sort of slowly creep in, even sometimes in professing believers' lives and it can lead to life just kind of grinding slowly to a halt where you start living just to survive. Just to get by. And then eventually it can even lead toward giving up. But faith in God and His promises leads to thriving. Even when you're in prison. And I don't know where you're at right now in your life. Maybe your life right now makes you feel trapped. Joseph would understand that. Jesus would understand that. Maybe your job makes you feel like you're in a sort of prison. Confined. No way out. Maybe your home life is so hard you can't see how things could ever get better for you. Joseph's story teaches us not to trust our eyes, but to trust in God's providential plan. So may each of us Trust not in what our eyes see, but to trust in God's good and glorious plan. I pray that blessing on every one of us. And the third and final point is, interpret the future gloriously. Interpret the future gloriously. Genesis begins with creation 
and ends with a coffin. How fitting when God creates so gloriously all of his creation and creates man. Everything he creates is good. And then man chooses to rebel against him and falls into sin and the fall enters into the world and corrupts everything and the wages of sin is death. How fitting that death would mark the end of Genesis because it's just the mark that our sin collectively has made. And how sad this ending would be in Genesis if you didn't trust in God's providential plan. Because brothers and sisters, the people, the main players here, particularly in Genesis 50, of Jacob and Joseph, at the end of this, they're dead. But you know what? God and His promises are very much alive. And that's the good news here in Genesis chapter 50. Joseph and his brother Judah are where the last 13 chapters kind of key in on. Joseph gets the most ink because the Scriptures are talking the most about his life, but there's like this interlacing in Judah's life in Genesis 38. So 37 is about Joseph, and 38, it's about Judah. And you read about Judah, and you can't help but just marvel at God's saving grace. These guys, Joseph and Judah, are both types of Christ. They, they remind you and they call to mind Jesus Christ because Joseph, through suffering, he saves the world from starvation, from famine, just as Christ, through suffering on the cross, saves the world from sin and death to all who trust in him. Judah is a picture of God's saving grace. If you read the story of Judah fathering his son Perez in Genesis 38, it's scandalous. And yet this story, laced with immorality and all kinds of sin, it's the very means God uses to bring about the salvation of the world through Judah and Perez's son, King Jesus, who comes. The seed of the woman or the offspring of the woman carries on through those two all the way down to Jesus Christ who dies on the cross and saves the world. Judah is an immoral man, but as the story progresses, he repents and he acknowledges his lack of righteousness in the story. He gets to the point where in Egypt, and this is awesome, you might, do you remember the part in Egypt where he's there and, and, and Joseph is saying, listen, one of you is going to need to stay back and it's going to be Benjamin. Benjamin needs to stay. You all leave. And, and, and in a moment of time, Judah recognizes the suffering this is going to bring about on his father Jacob. And all the times in the past where they were so insensitive to Jacob, it didn't care to even bring him to grief. Here, Judah is moved with compassion toward his father Jacob. And he, he intercedes and says, listen, let me say something to you. And he, he intercedes and steps in between and says, listen, don't take Benjamin, take me. And he basically offers up the sacrifice of himself in the place of Benjamin. It's Judah who does that. He's the first one in the Bible who offers up his own body in the place of another to deliver. And of course, that would be just fitting, wouldn't it? Because Judah is the tribe that Jesus came through who offered himself up for another. You, beloved. Jesus died on the cross in your place and in my place. And that's good news. You get the gospel portrayed right in these little details throughout the narrative. And I love how the Old Testament captures vivid details like that, don't you? Have you guys been enjoying this? I've been loving just seeing Christ in the Old Testament with you. But by the end of Genesis, you see all these men, Jacob and Joseph, they're dead. And they're stuck in Egypt. But the promise is very much alive. And Joseph, in his dying, ends up displaying one more act of faith when he says to the people, 
God will surely visit you. And it's interesting, when he says this here, later Moses in Exodus calls this very phrase to mind, God will surely visit us. Joseph's bones, Joseph wants to keep in Egypt. So that as the people of God are in slavery for the next 400 years in Egypt, whenever they look at that casket and that coffin, and they remember those bones inside that coffin, Joseph wants it to be a living memorial and a testimonial. Don't forget God's promise. He's going to bring us up out of here and take us back to Canaan, to the promised land. God will surely fulfill His promise. So even in His dying, even with His last act, it's an act of faith and it's an act of testimony to the people of God. That God always fulfills His promises. He works all things together for good. And I want even my coffin to be a daily reminder to you, don't leave me here in Egypt when God gets us out of here, but carry me up. And don't you know in Exodus 13, which is where we're going, Exodus 13, it's coming up. Exodus 13, the people of Israel hoisting up Joseph's coffin and his bones and taking them to the promised land. And you just can't be like, yes! Yes, God has fulfilled His promise yet again. And so on this sad note that the Scriptures end on with Genesis, where there's a coffin represented, even in the coffin, there's hope, brothers and sisters, because it doesn't end with a coffin. God's promise endures, even when His people die. God and His faithfulness continue to carry on, even from one generation to the next. Jacob and Joseph die. But little baby Perez is still alive in Egypt. And through his line, God sustains through all the years of slavery, all the way to King David, the line of Judah. And not only David, but all the way through to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, who came, He took on flesh, and He died on the cross for sinners, so that anybody in this room who repents and believes might not perish, might not die in a coffin and stay there with no hope, awaiting just eternal judgment in hell, but have received the gift of eternal life so much so, that what Christ has secured is that not only will Jacob's bones and Leah's bones in Canaan currently and Joseph's right now in Egypt, not only are those bones going to physically make it over to the land of promise, but one day Jesus Christ is going to come and He's going to die on the cross, but He's not going to stay in the grave. He's going to rise up from the grave conquering and reversing the curse of the fall and redeeming it all. And He's going to be the firstborn amongst many brothers so that when we get to heaven, we're going to see Jacob and we're going to see Joseph and they're no longer going to be in their coffins anymore and no longer will any of the people of God be there because brothers and sisters, we're going to see Jesus face to face. This one who has conquered sin and conquered death, we're going to enjoy Him forever in the promised land, the real promised land, the promised land that this promised land was only pointing to our eternal heaven with Jesus Christ our Lord. And I am so excited to be there together with you. This is where your life story believers heading. It's a happy ending. It's going to be awesome. And I want to share this story with you because this story reminds me of what Joseph did when he, even in his dying, testified to God. This story is called Keep Your Fork. And as I, as I speak it, if the worship band can return, listen carefully. There was a young woman who had been diagnosed with a terminal illness and had been given three months to live. So as she was getting her things in order, she contacted her pastor and had him come to her house and discuss certain aspects of her final wishes. She told him which songs she wanted sung at the service, what scripture she would like to read, and what outfit she wanted to be buried in. Everything was in order, and the pastor was preparing to leave when the young woman suddenly remembered something very important to her. There's one more thing, she said excitedly. 
What's that? Came the pastor's reply. This is very important, the young woman continued. I want to be buried with a fork in my right hand. The pastor stood looking at the young woman, not knowing quite what to say. That surprises you, doesn't it? The young woman asked. Well, to be honest, I'm puzzled by the request, said the pastor. The young woman explained. My grandmother once told me this story, and from there on out, I have always done so. I have also, I have also always tried to pass along its message to those I love and those who are in need of encouragement. Here's the story grandmother told. In all my years of attending church socials and potluck dinners, I always remember that when the dishes of the main course were being cleared, someone would inevitably lean over and say, keep your fork. It was my favorite part, the grandmother said, because I knew that something better was coming, like velvety chocolate cake or a deep dish apple pie. Something wonderful and with substance. So I just want people to see me there in that casket with a fork in my hand. And I want them to wonder, what's with the fork? And then I want you to tell them, keep your fork. The best is yet to come. The pastor's eyes welled up with tears of joy as he hugged the young woman goodbye. He knew this would be one of the last times he would see her before her death, but he also knew that the young woman had a better grasp of heaven than he did. She had a better grasp of what heaven would be like than many people twice her age, with twice as much experience and knowledge. She knew that something better was coming. And at the funeral, people were walking by the young woman's casket, and they saw the pretty dress she was wearing and the fork placed in her right hand. And over and over, the pastor heard the question, What's with the fork? And over and over he smiled. And during his message, the pastor told the people of the of the congregation he had with the young woman of the conversation he had with the young woman shortly before she died. He also told them about the fork and about what it symbolized to her. The pastor told the people how he could not stop thinking about the fork and told them that they probably would not be able to stop thinking about it either. And he was right. So the next time you reach down for your fork, let it remind you ever so gently that the best is yet to come. I love that story, don't you? Oh, in her dying, she wanted people to be reminded that the end for us, brothers and sisters, isn't death. For those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the end of this is a feast unlike any feast we've ever been a part of. When we get to the new heavens and new earth. We get to the promised land and we're in the new Jerusalem dining with Jesus. Jesus is going to serve us there, it says in Revelation. We're going to see the nail scars in his hands and all the sufferings that he went through to secure our salvation so that we could even be sitting there. And you know what? I'm sure we'll be holding forks. So remembering death is not the end for the Christian. The best is yet to come. God right now, in every detail of your life and mine, is working all things together for good. And even simultaneously, as Satan and all of his minions, sinners sinning against us, and sometimes even people we who should love us, intend things and mean things for evil. God simultaneously means it for good. Let us trust in Him and remember. This is not all there is. Hasn't God been good? That out of millions lost, He has saved us. And we are going to an eternal heaven where we are going to enjoy Christ forever in the promised land that is to come. Brothers and sisters, He's worthy of our worship and our praise. Let us stand and praise Him now. Thank you, Lord.
But Lord, help us to always start where this song starts. Thank you for the cross. Because, Lord, the cross puts everything else into perspective. The cross is the only place where the innocent suffered on behalf of the guilty. Lord, we are not innocent. We are not good. We are not worthy. Even to untie your sandal. We are not worthy to gather up the crumbs under the table. But Lord, you have had mercy on us. Jesus, you are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our adoration. You are worthy of our exaltation. And Lord, help us as we go from this place to remember the cross and always rejoice in you. Glory to your name. Glory to your holy name. Lord, we desire to express our thankfulness and praise to you for grace and mercy that is never changing. Lord, we change every day. We change every moment. But you never change. And you never change in your care for us. And so when we go from this place and we are hit with the cares of this life, even the prosperities of this life, Lord, help us to remember we are in your hands. And you are the one who is worthy of praise. God, enable us, empower us as we go from this place to seek your glory in everything we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you all.